0: Right, good morning, Be Free. Am I on? There go. Nope, not yet. Good morning, good morning. Check one, two. Hey, there we go. Good morning. Hey, thanks guys for coming this morning. My name is Ben. I'm the pastor here at Be Free, and we are a Christ-centered family that glorifies God by loving Him, loving others, and making disciples. That's who we are. That's what we do, and that's how we do it. Uh, when you came in this morning, you should have gotten a little family letter. That's something we try to do every other month, and that letter is just a way for you to see what's coming down the road, what's happening behind the scenes here. And that letter looks a little bit different this month than it has many months in the past, largely because we're in a very different situation uh, these days than we were in the past, but we hope that's helpful for you, encouraging, uh, and um, hope that if you have any questions, you'd feel comfortable coming and asking me uh, or the other elders about it. Speaking of elders, this is Chris Kane. Uh, Yesterday, or sorry, last week, uh, we voted as a church uh, for whether Chris Kane should be an elder of our church family. And you spoke with one voice 28 yeses, zero nos, uh, both here in person and online. And we elected Chris Kane to be an elder at our church. So please welcome Chris with me. so thankful to have Chris on the elder team he has been joining us for elder meetings over the last year or so um and that's been a sweet time for us this for him to see what we do as elders the things we talk about and pray about um but you know we did ask him to leave a couple times just so that we could keep private things uh amongst the elders but all in all uh, he shared conversations with us And uh, it it already feels like he's a part of the elders, but now you officially are, and it's so good to have you. Thank you. Yeah, as a part of the brothers. Um, So for a moment now, let's just stop, and I want to pray for Chris. Uh, I will lay my hands on him, nicely sanitized, I promise, (laughs) um, to to commission him officially as an elder of our church. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, I, I praise you bigger picture God for what you have done in Chris's life. Just getting to know him so well over this past year and getting to hear the stories of the way that you have been working uh, throughout the years of his life but also are still working in his life today. It just makes it so clear that he is a man who loves you and is seeking you. Who loves your church. Who loves the family that you've given him. Who loves Melissa. Leads her well. Cares for Kyle. Points him to you. And Father, he's the kind of man that I want to imitate in my own life and the kind of man that I want to be an example for all of us as a church. And so I just pray, Father, that as he steps into the role of elder, you would use him to shepherd your flock, to love your flock. And I pray, Father, that we would be blessed by his gifts even more than we already have been. Father, thank you for Chris. And we pray that you'd work in him and through him as an elder. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you, brother. Thank you. Yeah, I'll hug you. Right. Yeah, give him a hand. Awesome. Guys, we are in Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. Revelation 3, verses 7 through 13. That's the letter from the victorious Jesus Christ to the church in Philadelphia. Or as the Romans called it, Philly. That's not true. That's not true. Letter in Philadelphia. So last week, we were looking at the letter from the victorious Jesus Christ to the church in Sardis. And in that letter, Jesus had nothing good to say, basically, to the church in Sardis. And so because of that, Jesus spoke to them with strong language. He came exhorting them. Because at the end of the day, that's what the church in Sardis needed. They needed a nudge. They needed a push. They needed to be challenged. But that's a totally different situation than the church in Philadelphia. The church in Philadelphia... Jesus has nothing bad to say to them. Because this church has been faithful. This church has been walking faithfully with the Lord despite persecution, despite hardship. And so Jesus doesn't come to them with strong language, rather, he comes to them gently. This is an encouraging letter. Because that's what this church needed. That's what this church needed to hear. Now, I know that as we walk with Christ, as we, as we follow him, sometimes we need to be challenged, sometimes we need to be encouraged. But, you know, really, most of the time we need a little bit of both. We need to be challenged uh, in in some things, exhorted in some things, but comforted in other ways, encouraged in other ways. And so I'm frankly thankful that we come to a letter that's full of encouragement because if you feel like me at all, a lot of these letters have been pretty challenging. (laughs) They've had a lot more urging than they have had comforting. But this letter is going to be more of a comfort for us. And frankly, I do, I do feel like I need a little bit of comfort right now. <laughs> I need some encouragement right now. Because it doesn't take very long in any conversation for the topic to turn to things that aren't that encouraging. If you're on the internet, it doesn't take more than a click of one or two links before you find your way to some bit of news that isn't all that encouraging. Some post that isn't all that encouraging. And even though our reasons for being discouraged today might be really different than the reasons that the church in Philadelphia was discouraged, what I'm amazed by as I come to this letter is that the encouragements Jesus gives to this church are just as applicable to us today in our current situations as to the church 2,000 years ago. And so my prayer today as we dive into this letter is that we would be encouraged and comforted in our walk with the Lord especially with the discouragements that we face in our lives today. So let's read this passage, Revelation chapter 3, 7 through 13, and then I'll pray. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, Relevant and so applicable to us. It is just as true, just as relevant for us today, Lord, because it was written by you, a God who does not change. We can find hope in you, Lord, because you don't change no matter how many thousands of years go by. And so, Father, I pray that you in your infinite power and glory and love and majesty, we would be in awe of you today. And that because of who you are, we would recognize the hope that remains just as true and powerful to us today as well, God, thank you for this word. Teach us through it, grow us through it, lead us to worship and glorify you this morning. And we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. All right, Revelation chapter three, starting in verse seven. Let me read the introduction. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the True One. Who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. That sounds like Jesus. But what does that mean? (laughs) What does it mean that he was given the key of the house of David, that this is a man who can open a door and that no one will shut it, that he will close a door and that no one will open it? Now, who is it that holds a key to a house? Let's just ask that question. If somebody's got a key to a house, who is he? What does it say about that person? Well, what it says about that person is that he belongs there. He's allowed to enter into that house. And actually, not just that. More specifically, he has control of who else enters that house, right? If somebody has the key to a house, he can go and leave as he pleases. He can let other people in and out. He's the one who opens the doors. He's the one who closed the doors. In other words... He's the master of that house. He's the Lord of that house. He is the one who is over that house because he's got the key. And so back in Isaiah, when it's talking about Eliakim having the key of the house of David, what it's talking about is that Eliakim is given control over the house of Israel. He is being made master of Israel. He's being given power at that time specifically because Jerusalem was under siege and they needed someone to lead. And that's exactly what we see in Revelation chapter 3 verse 7 about Jesus. He is given here the key of David, which means that Jesus is the one who is the master of the house of David. He's the king of the house of David. He is the master of God's people, and it's Jesus who controls who enters into that house and who leaves that house. Jesus has the highest authority over who belongs there. If Jesus opens the door, the door is open and nobody's going to shut it. If Jesus shuts the door, that door is closed and nobody's going to open it. He says what goes, what he thinks matters, because he holds the keys. He is the king. And I love this image of opening and closing doors because it's so simple, but yet so profound, right? A first grader would understand what it means that somebody who has a key is the one who can open and close a door. Jesus is the one who has perfect, final, ultimate control over who belongs in the people of God. And so here in the introduction, it's saying, hey, look, the guy who's about to speak to you, who's about to write, he is the holy one. He is the true one, and he is the one with the highest authority over who are in and out of his house. So what is it that the opener and closer of doors has to say for himself? Let's read verses 8 through 11. Jesus says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. They will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. I think that by now in this series, I mean, this is the sixth letter that we've looked at in the book, the sixth letter from the victorious Jesus to a different church. I think by now we, we basically have the gist of what it looks like to be a Christian at this time and in this place. All these believers, no matter what town they were in, they were facing a certain kind, a certain degree of persecution. Either they were being persecuted by the pagan culture around them for not worshipping the emperor and not worshipping foreign gods, or they were being persecuted by the Jewish people, specifically because they were worshipping a crucified criminal, saying that he was the Messiah. And that they were breaking the Old Testament Jewish laws. So, of course, they were being persecuted from either one side or the other. It seems from this letter that the Jews in Philadelphia were being persecuted by the Jews more than by the pagans around them. But the Jews in this letter, they're called something pretty harsh. They're called a synagogue of Satan. Now, we've seen that language before. We saw it back in the letter to Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2, verse 9. But this harsh language is being used to talk about those who are actually Jewish. Those who really are culturally and historically Jewish. Those who are able to call themselves Jews because they could call Abraham their forefather. But the thing is that these actual Jews were not believing the prophecies of the Jews. They weren't believing that Jesus was actually the Messiah that was going to be sent. So yes, they were Jews, but they weren't following the Jewish king. They weren't following the one that God sent to deliver them. And so God calls these Jews a synagogue of Satan because in reality, they were rejecting their king. They were rejecting the one who came. And so then they were doing what Satan does. It's harsh language, but it is a a way of Jesus saying they are not actually following the Messiah. They're not actually following me. And so these Jews, that he's calling the synagogue of Satan, have cast the Jewish Christians out of the community of God's people, telling them, guys, you don't belong here. You worship a crucified criminal. You don't follow our laws. You're not a part of us. You don't belong here. But let's just do a thought experiment really quick. I want you to imagine that I invited you over to my house, um, and we sat down, we were having dinner. Davy's there at the head of the table where she always is. Not the master of the house, so I made that call. But she's sitting there at the head of the table, and she starts throwing food on the ground. And she starts making a fuss and and screaming, and it's really hard to have a conversation. So you get fed up at our dinner table, and you say, Davey, get out! (laughs) What would I do in that moment? How would I respond to you if you sent my daughter out of our house because she was annoying? Hopefully, in a nice, kind way, I would say something to the effect of, you can't do that. You have no authority here. This is my house. That's my daughter. I hold the keys. (laughs) You can't make the rules in my house. You can't decide who gets to be in my house and who goes out of the house. That's, That's my authority, not yours. But that's what Jesus is saying to the Christians here about the Jews. He's saying to them, hey, look, these Jews, they might have tried to put you out of my house, but hey, they don't have the authority to do that. The house of my people, they don't hold the keys. I hold the keys. I'm the one who has authority over who comes and who goes. I'm the one who opens and closes the doors. If I say you're in, guys, you're in, not them. I get to decide who comes in and out of the people of God. And look, verse 8, Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. The Jews might be trying to throw you out of the people of God, but guys, they don't have the right to do that. It's my house, and I put before you an open door. And the thing is, the Jews, at this point, they don't know the mistake they're making, but Jesus makes it really clear that soon they will know. Soon the Jews are going to be perfectly aware that they have made a Massive error in their judgment of who God is, who Jesus is, and who these people are. We see that in verse 9. It says this, I will make them, that's the Jews, come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Jesus is coming again, and when he does, it will be absolutely clear to these Jews that they have been wrong about Jesus, and they have been wrong about Jesus' people. That they have been wrong to try to throw them out of the people of God because they are in. They are God's people and no one can throw them out. And until that day comes, Jesus gives this command right there in verse 11. He says, Hold fast to what you have. Hold fast to what you have. And what do they have? What have they been given? They have been given the truth. They've been given the message of Jesus Christ. They have believed that. They have been given life in the name of Jesus. Jesus is saying, hold fast to that. No matter what persecution comes, no matter what trials come, hold fast to what you have. Hold fast to the life that you have in my name. And the good news here that we see in this passage is that is exactly what they've been doing. Verse 8, he says, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Guys, keep it up. Verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Keep my word and I will keep you from the hour that is coming. Hold fast to me and I will hold fast to you and give you the victor's crown. Verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Let's read to the end of this passage now. Let's see what this promise exactly entails. Verses 12 and 13. The one who conquers. I will make him a pillar. In the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God. The name of the city of my God. The new Jerusalem. Which comes down from my God. Out of heaven. in my own new name. He who has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, in this entire letter, there is only one command. In this entire letter, Jesus only gives the Church of Philadelphia one command, one thing that they need to do, and it is to hold fast. Hold fast to what you have. Hold fast to your faith in me. So he's saying here, hold fast to me, and I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall you go out of it. Hold fast to me, and I will establish you in the house of my God like a pillar, solid, established, unmoving. Hold fast to me, and you will be established, not anywhere, but in the temple of my God. In other words, in the presence of my God. Hold fast to me, and I will put you in God's presence, and you ain't going nowhere. Hold fast to me. And I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, and the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and on, sorry, and my new name. He's saying, hold fast to me, and I will inscribe on you my name. I will inscribe on you the name of God. I will inscribe on you the name of the new Jerusalem, the kingdom that I am bringing. Hold fast to me, and I will mark you. I will label you as mine. Hold fast to me, and I will do to you what Andy did to Woody in Toy Story. I will write my name on you so that you will never forget to whom you belong. Hold fast to me, and you are mine. Hold fast to me, hold fast to Jesus, and you will dwell in the presence of God as his people forever without end. You aren't going anywhere. This is what these Christians needed to hear. That even as the people of God around him, the Jews were saying, no, 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 you got it all wrong, get out. Jesus is saying, no, 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 you got it right. I am who you think I am. Hold fast to that. No matter what comes, don't forget that if you hold fast to me, you will be in the presence of my God forever. Promise citizenship in my kingdom. My name will be written on you. All this is yours if you hold fast to me. Now, as I said before, the the Christians in Philadelphia, I mean, they were struggling with very different things uh, than we are struggling with. We don't struggle over the question as to whether or not the Jews think we're Jews. It's a different world, different struggles, different discouragements. And you would think that after 2,000 years, we might need a different kind of encouragement than what these Christians needed in Philadelphia. But the thing that's so amazing to me in this letter is that the encouragements given by Jesus to the church are just as relevant, just as encouraging to us today as they would have been to the Christians in the first century. And so let me tell you just three encouragements that I'm pulling out of this letter. There are more. We could make a longer list. I'm going to focus on three. Three ways this letter encourages us to walk with Jesus today. First encouragement... Jesus is not like you. Jesus is not like you. This isn't, how is that an encouragement? Let me show you. Jesus tells us about us, about humans in verse 8. You have but little power. That's what he says about us. That's the only description he gives to the, the Christians in Philadelphia. You have but little power. You're not all that strong. You can't do all that much to change the situations of what's happening around you. You can't do all that much to change the hearts of the people around you. You have but little power. In your life, be encouraged because God is not like you. He has never been overwhelmed. He will never be overwhelmed. Even when he was overwhelmed by men on earth, he willingly laid down his life. He has the ultimate power. And when you are discouraged by your lack of control of what is happening in this world, even happening maybe in your own household, be encouraged because God is not like you. While you have little to no control of what happens in this world, our God is reigning sovereign over everything. So be encouraged, be free. Our God is not like us. He is perfect in power. Praise God. That's the first encouragement. Second encouragement, no one and nothing can take away what Christ has given us. No one and nothing can take away what Christ has given us. (laughs) You know, this, this church in Philadelphia, it was being opposed by the Jews. We today, we might see opposition coming from different places, but Jesus, the holy one, the true one, the one with the key, the opener and closer of doors... He, the actual master, he's the one that says this, Behold, I have set before you an open door that no one can shut. Jesus has swung the door wide open for you. (laughs) And if you have believed in Jesus, put your faith in him, and his death on the cross in your place, then you have entered into his house. You are his. And no one and nothing can undo what he has done. Verse 11, no one will seize your crown. John 10, 28, no one will snatch you out of his hand. No suffering can destroy your hope. No earthly authority can remove your reward. You have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. And if he says you're in, you're in. If he says you're his, you're his. The name that is above every name, this name, Jesus Christ says, no one or nothing can take you out of my hand. Be free. Do not lose that hope. Be encouraged by that. So the first encouragement, Jesus is not like you. Second encouragement, no one and nothing can take you out of the hands of Jesus Christ, out of his house. And the final encouragement I have for you here is something we see in verse 11. Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is coming soon. I'd rather not admit this to you, uh, just exactly how much Fiction I have consumed (laughs) over the last seven months. Uh, Over the last seven months, I find myself just reading and watching fiction, even fantasy uh, stories. For the entire Narnia and Lord of the Rings series, uh, Olivia and I have watched the Marvel series. (laughs) I'm not even going to share with you all the all the all the examples of fiction I've consumed. And it wasn't voluntary. I wasn't trying to uh, to really binge all this fiction. But the steep increase has come for a reason, and I think I know why. It's because the real world's not that fun. And over the last seven months, the real world has been no fun. <laughs> we've been surviving the last seven months. We, we've been living in a world where almost nothing feels the way it's supposed to feel. Church doesn't feel normal. Our friendships don't feel normal. Our, our work doesn't feel normal. Even our families feel out of whack. I've had that experience in my own life. I've had conversations with many most most of you about a similar feeling. But the reason that I find myself I believe turning to fiction so much in this day in these days specifically is because after Frodo's quest the ring is destroyed. It's because after each Narnia story Aslan appears. At the end of each Sherlock story, the bad guy is caught. Even at the end of each Marvel movie, the bad guy loses. Except that one, but then they made a whole other one to correct that. While the entire world is not the way it's supposed to be, fiction promises what the real world can't. The real world promises a happy ending. And the more wrong we see in the world, the more we want a happy ending. And the final encouragement that we take away from this passage is that even while the real world can't give us a happy ending, Jesus Christ can. He has promised us a happy ending. He has promised us that one day, he will come and he will bring history to the happy ending that our hearts all long for, proved by the fact that I'm not the only one consuming fiction. The deepest longings of our heart will come true when the king comes and brings his kingdom. We are looking forward to that day. And I have to admit, when I was a kid, I remember going to church and hearing stories about the, uh, that Jesus Christ was going to come again someday, and it just scared the snot out of me. <laughs> I remember uh, people say, uh, praying and singing, come Lord Jesus, and I would just add a little addendum, like maybe later, <laughs> maybe after I've had my life, maybe this is after, after all that. But the more brokenness I see in the world, and I'm sure it's the same for you as well, the more brokenness we see in the world, the more we want to join in that chorus and say, Come, Lord Jesus. Because when we look around the world and we see things the way that they are, we have to acknowledge this is not the way it's supposed to be. The longer I live, the easier it is for me to believe that Genesis 3 actually happened. And the longer the live, I live, the lo- more I long for the day when Jesus Christ will come again to make all things new. This cry, come Lord Jesus, flows from a heart that is recognized that something better is coming. So be encouraged. It's because the kingdom of God is coming. And it is coming in its fullness. Let me read this description of it to you that we've read so many times in Revelation 21. Just through verse 5. Here it is. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth has passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne (laughs) that's Jesus' voice saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, he will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God in our presence. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I can't wait for that day. And by faith in Jesus Christ, by by holding tight to what we have in him, we are marked as citizens of that kingdom. His name is written on the bottom of our feet. We are established as pillars unmoving in that kingdom. That is ours, and it's going to be ours forever. And on that day, we will feast with the Lord, be encouraged, be free, because Jesus Christ is coming soon. I mean, I, I think it's so fitting that we talk about that right now because it's the first Sunday of the month. And what we do on the first Sunday of every month is communion. And when we do communion, we, we fix our eyes in a number of different places, right? We, when we do communion, we fix our eyes on the past, remembering what happened on the cross, remembering that Jesus Christ died, shedding his blood, breaking his body so that we could have life in his name. But we don't just look to the past, we look around us right now, be free, and recognize that the family that we've been saved into is all of us. We are now united by that blood of Jesus Christ. We don't just look back, we don't just look around, we look up. Remembering that Jesus Christ is right now reigning on his throne, that he is over all things, and he will bring an end to all things. He will bring his kingdom in its fullness. We look back, we look around, we look up. And finally, we look to the future. We look to the future remembering that this bread and this cup that we're about to take together is just a foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Just a taste of the feast that will happen, the banquet that's going to happen on the day that we go home to glory with Jesus Christ. So be free. As we move towards communion now, be reminded of that. Look to the future. Remember that this mini-meal is a foretaste of the feast that will be ours in the kingdom of God one day. So go ahead, grab your juice and your bread. Now, start working on that tricky cellophane. And as you do, let me say this. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have put your faith in him, if you are holding fast to what is yours, to life in Jesus Christ, I just want to say, this meal is for you. May this be a time of worship. May this be a time for you to remember what he has done and to look forward to the future that is ours in him. A foretaste of the feast that's coming. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ today, I just have to say, please don't join us in communion today. Um, We ask that you would not uh, take these elements. This is something that the people of God uh, do together as worship. But the good news is that if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, you can join us today if you would surrender your life to Jesus Christ.